right, hello and welcome to the popular show. I have the pleasure of talking to Anne Pettifor, the celebrated economist and brilliant writer on money and one of the people who was there on the ground floor of the devising of the Green New Deal, which we're going to be discussing on this episode of the popular show. Hello to the Sublation Media YouTube audience uh, and hello to our regular podcast audience too. Please like, subscribe, click below to follow our own YouTube account and also consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Anne is the author of The Case for the Green New Deal. She is the author of The Production of Money, very, very brilliant book. Uh, on capitalism, and is also a substacker. Uh, so we encourage you to click through below and subscribe to Anne's Substack. Anne Pettifor, thank you very much for joining us here on The Popular Show. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking to you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You, um, you, you, you were there at the start of this idea, which has since become hegemonic, dare I say, with all of the um, pluses and minuses that come with uh, such a, a fate of an idea in 2008, uh, immediately following the, the financial crash, which of course you were one of a handful of people who predicted, maybe the first <laughs> the first person by some accounts uh, to, to see it coming. Um, you, you were part of a group who said that uh, with this you know, complete failure of the capitalist system and, and absolute failure, of neoliberalism, there needed to be a new approach and a new idea. It needed to take account of environmental ideas, and it also needed to be fundamentally democratizing, both at the level of the economy and at the level of political power. The name of that idea was the Green New Deal, and it had to wait a decade to become the policy of any major political party, as I understand it. I guess it depends what you mean by major. But 2019 is the thing that stands out for me when the Labour Party uh, in the final party conference of Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as Labour leader adopted it finally as party policy. Since then, across the political spectrum, it's unescapable. Uh, AOC has uh, made it the kind of... Um, uh, the signature, if you like, of uh, the squad, the, the far left of the Democrat Party in the States. But it's also had versions um, advocated on the on the right, with Boris Johnson, even in the 2019 election. The EU now speaks of a green deal, perhaps ominously dropping the, uh, the reference to Roosevelt uh, with the word new. Uh, and um, even Bill Gates and other... Uh, representatives of the billionaire class that you've been extremely critical of speak your language. What's that like, Anne? <laughs> well, first of all, can I say that I was one of quite a few who predicted the crisis. Um, I was very much like the little girl calling the emperor, uh, calling out the emperor for having no clothes. But um, there were others too, including Steve Keen, who I know you've had on this uh, podcast. And secondly, yes, you know, the, the Green New Deal was actually the idea, the, the title of it was actually thought of by Colin Hines, who convened a group of environmentalists and economists at the height of the global financial crisis in 2007-8. And we spent nearly a year pulling together the Green New Deal. And what was wonderful about it was that it was the first attempt, I think, for environmentalists and economists, e ecologists and economists, if you like, to come together and forge something 
that was joint. And um, we wanted joined up thinking, as we say in the report, as we said in the original report. And I still think that's terribly important, you know, to talk about the ecosystem without talking about the economic system is to miss half the story or three quarters of the story, actually, because we have to manage an economic system dedicated to extracting and exploiting the Earth's finite assets, which includes its human assets, basically, but definitely its ecosystem assets. So um, until we can do that, and that's what, as you say, one of the weaknesses of the European uh, idea is that they refused to acknowledge what Roosevelt had done in 1933. He had unilaterally, thanks to the power of the United States economy, dismantled the gold standard. He did it first of all for the United States alone, but later in 1933, when the neoliberal economists and, and the right-wing politicians of Europe invited him to a conference to restore the gold standard, he more or less told them to go and dump in the lake and refused to attend. And with his absence, maintaining the gold standard became impossible. But what he did was he demanded that Wall Street, on the night of his inauguration, he prepared to demand of Wall Street that they close the banks and they hand over all the gold that they owned. And he argued that in future, they were not going to determine the key levers of the economy, which included exchange rates, interest rates, and capital flows in and out of the economy. In future, that was going to be managed by a democratically elected government. And, um, you know, Roosevelt, I don't want to defend him, he wasn't perfect, he made errors. He was really quite conservative and panicked in 1937 and imposed austerity. And that quickly led to a rise in unemployment and he did a U-turn, right? But he should never have taken that risk at that point. But there you go. The man wasn't perfect by any means, but he understood that in order to tackle the ecological crisis that the United States faced at that time, i.e. The, the vast drought in the, you know, the Great Plains of the United States, he had to do something about the financial system and the economic system. And he did. Um, and that's what is at the heart of the Green New Deal, the idea of transforming the international financial system to make it work for people and the ecosystem and not for the 1%. Um, and that's at the heart of the Green New Deal. I'm very, very proud of it. I'm very proud. It took a while to be picked up. And I think we have to thank AOC for her advocacy of it, because that certainly made it famous and got it picked up worldwide, whereas before before she adopted it, it, it really hadn't got very far. Um, and there are different interpretations. It's an umbrella, James, under which it, the left, if you like, and, and environmentalists can gather. And it's an umbrella which gives them an, a case, an argument, uh, um, an advocacy, if you like, for, for transformation. Um, now, we know that some people would just like a small bit of it. Oh, let's have lots of technological change and that's going to save the ecosystem. But don't let's change the financial system. That's too complicated. Or no, we don't want to go. We don't want to threaten Wall Street because that's too scary. But we do want to have more public sector railways, transport. Uh, we do want to have cleaner energy and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's that's the way it's adopted in some places. Um, and definitely inside the European Union. But I think that 
its core message is understood by the bulk of the activists that put their name to it. Um, and that core message is that in order to save the ecosystem, we have to radically and revolutionize and transform the international financial system. So it's a big ask, but it's been done before. And it was done, you know, in the case of 1933, it was done overnight, overnight by a very powerful state, the United States. Not sure the United States could do it now, but the European Union with political will could do it now if they wanted to. That, you know, they constitute a big power block. China could do it too. And China's probably thinking about doing it right as we speak. We can afford what we can do, as you, you quote uh, Keynes in, in the production of money as, as the title of one of the chapters. Um, I, I want to get into what, what your current thinking you know, you 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 put pen to paper on 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 you know the the Verso book where you outline your kind of your vision of it, but that was before COVID, and that was also before this kind of environmental and net zero turn uh, in in so many uh, of the, the the power blocks uh, in the world over the last couple of years. So I, I want to ask you about that, but um, b before we get into into that. Um, I want to raise some of the sort of potential criticisms. I mean, the, the part of the, the left that has always been suspicious of environmentalism might be just as surprised as some of the supporters of the of the phrase uh, to learn that you you from pretty early on saw this as a kind of anti-globalization arguments and actually i've heard you in, in various uh, interviews actually associating the argument with um certain energies of brexit and other national populisms uh, as, as kind of answering some of the questions and demands that were broken open by those kind of right anti-systemic uh, tendencies of the of the last decade I, I think there are quite a lot of people who maybe associate environmentalism and especially the way that Green Deal, Green New Deal, this kind of language is getting used by governments now with a kind of um, totalizing, top-down, globalist kind of approach. But I think it's worth stressing sort of early on in this discussion that really you saw it as the as the opposite of that. Perhaps you could get into why this is a kind of anti-globalization idea as opposed to the opposite. So... I mean, it's all complicated, James, isn't it? But it's this, really. Um, I mean, number one, I'm a, I'm a great admirer of Karl Polanyi, and I still think his great transformation is such a relevant text at the moment in our history. And, and my understanding is from him that nationalism and authoritarianism, which I abhor, I grew up under a nationalist government in South Africa, and I can tell you I can't stand the word nationalist. <laughs> Um, because I know what nationalism can do. I know how racist it can be. I know how sectarian it can be and divisive and so on. And he argued that the rise of nationalism and authoritarianism was a reaction to a feeling of impotence by the population whose governments were saying, as our governments today are saying, sorry, but the price of oil is nothing to do with me. It's the market. Sorry, the price of food is nothing to do with me. It's the market right and the people said well if you the government will not defend me i am going to turn to a strong man or woman to do that for me donald trump bolsonaro uh mrs le pen you name them 
They are the strong men and women who are promising their people that they will protect them from the Rust Belt, in the case of the United States, to be protected from those wicked Chinese. Or, you know, um, in the case of Mrs. Le Pen, foreigners uh, or uh, Muslim people or whatever, they will find demons and use those as decoys, if you like. And I find that all evil, but also entirely predictable. It's a response to the kind of impotence that people feel when their governments say, sorry, nothing to do with me, Gov. I'm sorry you've, your wages are, are low in real terms and have been for decades, but it's not me. I haven't fixed wages. It's the market, right? And that that sense of impotence is what's driving populism, in my view. Now, I'm not a nationalist, not in any way. However, I am a Democrat. And again, I feel very strongly about democracy because I grew up in South Africa where, you know, nine-tenths of the population had no access to a democratic vote. So um, I understand how important democracy is. Um, but for me, in order for us to achieve democratic change and accountable change requires policy autonomy, as it's called. In other words, governments have got to be allowed to have some management of the economy uh, and to be able to manage it and, and, and to be able to implement policies which will defend the interests of the people. Now, that's exactly what the, call them neoliberalism, but I call it capitalism. What capitalism has done is to strip governments of those powers, very deliberately, strip governments of gas storage facilities, strip government, privatize them, close them down, do whatever you can do in order to make the market dominant, right? And when you strip government of those powers, and people feel powerless, they go towards nationalism. So I want to restore powers to especially democratic states, but even undemocratic states, um, because, you know, lack of power is what's fermenting authoritarianism, fascism, you call it what you will, really. Um, but where I differ from nationalists is this. I believe in policy autonomy. I believe in governments being able to be accountable to their people for the way in which economic policy is conducted. I also believe that it's quite hard to, to conduct democratic accountability across, uh, you know, the world. Um, we've seen and I've seen the European Union struggle to appear democratic. It's not democratic. It has a central bank that is entirely unaccountable to the people, right? And it governed by technocrats who do as they will, right? But but even the European Parliament struggles to be representative of the forces across Europe and, um, and, and to represent people. And we don't, we all struggle to have trust in the European Parliament. It, it lacks political power. It lacks political power because it isn't fully representative. So, and that's partly a factor. That's partly because it's multinational. Uh, and there are plenty of people who believe we should have a global government. Now, that global government would be entirely uh, unaccountable. And, and in my view, the neoliberals would love that. And many Greens argue for a global government. Again, how do I, how do I, how do I hold a, a global MP accountable to me for the fact that he's impoverishing me or whatever? So, so I find all of that, I find that for democracy to function, 
We need manageable states or regions, you know. I mean, I think the European Union could be made more accountable and more democratic. I think Africa needs to build regional powers too. Uh, you know, Africa needs to work together regionally. But, but I just want to make this point. Why I'm different from a nationalist is that I believe in internationalism as opposed to globalization. I believe that actually for us to be able to have democratic accountability at home requires us to coordinate and cooperate at an international level. Now, internationalism and working internationally on multilateral issues, for example, is something that nationalists cannot stand. You know, the idea that the president of Hungary is going to be a, a uh, an internationalist is going to work cooperatively with his partners and with countries surrounding his country. It's just ludicrous. They, they're not like that. They're authoritarian. They just want to dictate policy where they are. And that's the difference. And so the way I argued, and I owe a great deal to my colleague uh, Jeff Tiley for this, is to argue that we need a new kind of internationalism based on the power of labor, i.e. the 99%, not a globalization based on the interests of the 1%. So I am an internationalist for promoting the interests of the 99%, if you like, labor in the broader sense of the word, and not wealth in the mm -hmm. sense that the 1% represent. So that's it's a complicated tale, but it, it comes down to you know how to make democracy work. And I don't believe you can make it work at a global level. And it's even difficult to make it work at, for example, a European level. Another critical question. Um, th this is a, a, a sort of argument that um, has been a big motive of doing this show and has been something that's worried me or, or I've had my eyes peeled for emanations of it basically since the defeat of Corbyn and Bernie. Um, Nancy Fraser, among others, has argued that after 1968, what the left saw was not a straightforward defeat, but a defeat whereby elites started speaking like the left, that there is a danger that a defeated left ends up gifting victorious elites new frames of feeling, new frames of attitude, new vocabulary, even new policy ideas, which it then puts to reactionary um, reactionary causes, uh, but with the applause of certain parts of the left who think that, oh, at least we won that part of the argument, as uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself put it, in, in defeat. So uh, a big thing that we've been mindful of on The Popular Show is, is there a danger of this happening? Is there some way in which this extraordinary policy renaissance and this huge activation of um, of, of previously apolitical people, or people who hadn't been involved in the political process at all by those left resurgences uh, around 2016, is there a way in which the defeat of that might end up kind of repeating the pattern that Nancy Fraser describes? I mean, her example is the way that second wave feminism uh, kind of lent a, a vocabulary, you know, if, if, you, if you didn't like the androcentric family with the male breadwinner, then neoliberalism was about to make the two uh, earner family 
you know basically compulsory for most people um just to just to take a small example so I, when i i look at um the eu or joe biden you know historically the, the most right-wing kind of democrat uh the eu as you described deeply anti-democratic institution that is deeply paranoid right now precisely because of these various forms of, of rebellion from across the political spectrum that it's experienced since 2008. When I see these structurally anti-left institutions and, 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 and highly anti-democratic, anti-populist, all of its institutions adopting stuff that's come out of our kitchen, that's when I start to worry that it, it's not so much as some people on the left would say, oh, at least we won the argument on something, at least we influenced them on something. But there's a danger that the way that this will shake out is that we are offering a kind of greenwashing for um, a, 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 a kind of reduction in living standards determined from the top, a new kind of um, removal of political agency, hope and power, uh, almost to punish citizens for the populist uprisings of the past decade. You see where I'm going here. That there's, a, there's, a, there's a danger that our very terms, and the Green New Deal would be a, a fabulous example, as uh, uh, our strongest terms end up getting taken away from us and used by people with actually opposite final political aims to ours. So you're, you're now dragging me into the field of sociology where I'm actually... Uh... <laughs> largely so um uh, you know and i'm aware but i'm aware of these arguments can i say this i think i would just want to make two points which is first of all the left has to understand we have to gain political power and the left i think and by the left i mean oh, all the wonderful good people that i know in churches in green organizations in the labor party wherever you look really find the idea of power unpalatable right because power is power you know the power of the state is a very destructive power you know as Corbyn experienced you know it's a power that has nuclear weapons at its disposal um and and we are reviled by that we find that unacceptable I, but we have to understand that we have to gain political power and not soft power real power the power mm -hmm. of transformation yeah. um so I think there's there's that aversion to the dirty business of gaining political power. And I see it in some of the best uh, of the advocates that we have. And the second point is this, to gain political power, in my view, you have to bring over sections of the right. You have to bring over a population that has backed Trump and Johnson and so on. It's no good alienating them. They have to be persuaded to join your camp, you know. And I and and of course, you know, there's the fear that they may, if you like, influence the camp. But I think the key task is to convert, if you like, a whole section of the population that we tend to ignore. We tend to like to be with people who think like us, and we've got to get over that. Really, that's indulgence. Um, and I, you know, I was so thrilled. Uh, to hear about the result in Kansas last night. Mm -hmm. The result was an extraordinary success. And, and I mean, we saw it happen in Ireland as well. We yeah. saw the Catholic Church wield enormous power in Ireland over the bodies of women. 
And we've seen Trump and the Supreme Court try to do the same in the United States. And when it comes to the crunch, ordinary, decent people understand this is wrong, right? And I don't, I mean, I've been watching how the Kansas arguments were conducted, and I noticed that they argued, for example, that there would be a government mandate to interfere in the personal lives of women. And that, you know, we, that government mandate was treated as, now I'm not sure if I would endorse that language, but the point of the, the matter is this, it was sufficient to make people say, oh, hang on, mm -hmm. you know, women should be able to make the decisions themselves. And, and they've overturned what is a very Trumpian majority in, um, in Kansas. Now, that for me is skillful power harvesting. Yeah. And it's a great example because it, it demonstrates precisely um, the the low expectations that actually a lot of the the liberal part of the elite has yeah, of exactly. the of the people. That whole kind of yeah. uh, horror and anxiety of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Yeah. Wade. The subtext yeah. of it was: if you hand this power back to states, then those Neanderthals in those states are going to, you know, be, you know doing yeah. the most reactionary thing. Actually, what we see in Kansas is that people are alive to political argument, and if they're not yeah. patronized, uh, yeah. that you you can do you can do business. Yeah. So you know, I would if I was a lefty in the United States, I would be thrilled at mm -hmm. winning over a section of Trumpian supporters. I think it's going to make very very hard in November for the Trump supporters to vote for Trump or whoever you know, he uh, is there to represent his interests. I think I think they must be fretty. <laughs> and this coincides also with the Alex Jones court case where the conspiracy theorists have been done over with their own evil texts and things. Their own phones, so, yeah. mm. What we're seeing happening, and, you know, one must never despair. I mean, I personally believe that many politicians treat the uh, voting public as in a most patronising way. And I think there's a huge danger. I learned this at Jubilee 2000, you know, because when we began the campaign, um, the people that hired me said, we'd like you to go out and campaign on the debt relief. We'd like you to go to Washington and go to the IMF and the World Bank and persuade them they have to cancel these debts. And I said, sweethearts, you can't do this. It won't be done. You have mm -hmm. to have a public campaign. And they said, no, you'd never get the public interested in this. It's far too complicated. It's far too difficult for them to understand. This is the international financial architecture. You know, it's really, it's bilateral and uh, multilateral debt, it's commercial debt, it's the net present value of debt. I mean, these are all complicated ideas, aren't they? And I said, no, they're not. They're not rocket science. And I, the proudest moment for me, and I repeat the story wherever I have the chance to, is the time the Treasury official came up to me and said, uh, what the hell is going on here? We've had to hire additional people to deal with correspondence on this matter. And we get letters from women on pink paper with bunches of roses in the corner saying, dear sir, I understand that you have refused to cancel Uganda's debt and that you've chosen a cutoff date for the debt that is serviced of 1981. I blah, blah, think this is deeply unreasonable. Whoever told her about Uganda's cutoff date, he said to me, I said, mm -hmm. we, you know, and she's not stupid. She got it. And so that really taught me a powerful lesson. And I think the left on the whole can be so arrogant about 
and so sense of superiority. You know, we're the, I mean, I hate to say the chosen few, but we are the brightest, we're the most liberal, the most advanced, and we're not actually. And unless we can, if you like, harvest the votes of our opponents, unless we can persuade some of those opponents to come over to our side, not with bribery, or, but with very powerful arguments and yeah. by actually setting their interests as a priority, you know, we would win political power. So we have yeah. to think like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well this show is, is dedicated to the, the maxim that the path to power uh, and the path to the radical um, democratisation of the economy is through the deplorables, <laughs> is via the deplorables, not absolutely. from a Above. But let, let's stay from above in that case. I mean, the, the last few years have seen a remarkable radicalization of American liberals. Uh, ra they've been ra radicalized by, by Trump, basically. They've been radicalized on race. They've been radicalized uh, on gender following Me Too. Um, and uh, they've also, they've, well, they've been radicalized one way or another. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe the, the, the pretty in, in the view of this show anyway, crazy response to COVID on, on the part of many of them. And they're also apparently beginning to be radicalized on the environment. And again, this is this is the sort of the this is the party that you don't want speaking for the Green New Deal. This is the this is the anti-democratic, uh, anti-populist party that are seeking to kind of claim environmentalism against the democratizing um, a verve that, uh, that, that that you originally attributed to it. Let, let's drop in another clip. This is talk show host Bill Meyer um, in, a, in a pretty startling uh, little monologue, as far as I'm concerned, from last week. And finally, new rule, the recent report that informed us that in November of this year, the population of the Earth will hit 8 billion is not good news. And those who regard it as such should be treated for TikTok brain. <laughs> the Secretary General of the United Nations, of all people, said that welcoming our eight billionth person was an occasion to celebrate our diversity. Yes, what a comfort that people of all races will be contributing to an already unsustainable carbon footprint and choking and starving equally. <laughs> Have you... <laughs> Have you seen what has been happening with the climate in recent years? Did you see England last week? England is pretty far north, but the runways are melting. Our farmland is shrinking due to scorching temperatures and drought. One out of four people on Earth is food insecure, what we used to call hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, a decade ago, you'd be grateful to hear uh, you know, talk about climate change and uh, and the environment on uh, on a mainstream channel like that. But I guess w what I'm bringing that up for is the way that it is. It kind of come. It comes with the entry price of this deep contempt for the mass of people, and this kind of depopulation discourse, which is never far from a kind of eugenic discourse. So it, it, it's as if an American liberalism that no longer trusts the people and is horrified, actually, by the people yes. uh, it, it is now kind of articulating that contempt through the language of environmentalism. How do we fight that? Well, first of all, you know, I think we have to take that apart. What he said was, you know, our carbon footprint 
we all know that the concept, I hope we all know by now, that the carbon footprint concept was devised by the oil companies to blame everybody for climate mm -hmm. change. Those, you know, those melting uh, airports and so on are all down to me and you. At that very moment, at the very moment he said that, um, there were wonderfully wealthy uh, American celebrities flying across the United States in their jets and emitting tons, tons of greenhouse gas emissions with one flight, right, and with one journey and making lots of these journeys. Now, so what, what, that, what that's missing, and very deliberately, I think, and again here, this is where the, wet, the left gets caught up in these arguments. We're now fighting on their ground as to, you know, no, no, it's not fair, it's unclear, you know, don't be mm -hmm. unkind about 8 billion people. We should be saying, you forget, you forget that the 1% and the top 10%, and by the way, I include myself in the top 10%, are responsible for these emissions. The 90%, have, are really, you know, their emissions are meager, meager in comparison. And, and you know, the growth in population is going to take place in Africa, the, the continent the least responsible for climate change. And his attack is also an attack on black people. It's racism too. So, you know, in my view, it's because we haven't made the argument about the role of the 1% in generating emissions. You know, they get away with murder. During the pandemic, the sale of yachts, super yachts, exploded, mainly thanks to QE, thanks to the central banks pumping liquidity into the bank accounts of the speculators. The, the expansion in the purchase of, of super yachts was massive. And the expansion, and then apparently Trump, and I, I only heard this secondhand, uh, introduced some tax break for people owning private jets. And the number there aren't enough hangars in the United States to accommodate the, the yeah. private jets that operate, and the emissions from those far exceed the emissions of the eight billion, really, of or at least seven and a half billion, basically. And I think it's because we on the left go along with the carbon footprint. Oh, we're all you know we've got to cut out, we've got to do this, we have to, do it. and it's your fault. It's all of our fault. We're all to blame. That's such a convenient argument for the 1%. They can't believe their luck. We're arguing that for them. This, I think, is the point that you were trying to make. And I think, I hope it is, because it's something yeah. I feel mm -hmm. very strongly about. And it's our yes. failure to point out where the real damage is coming from that enables people like Maha, who's himself a member of the 1%, to make those obscene arguments about the rest of the world. So, anyway. <laughs> so... I mean, picking up where we are, the, the your Verso book gives a, a, a kind of great account of of how this um, this democratized economy, this uh, this kind of this massive expansion of uh, of opportunity for for workers, and and this tipping of the balance of power towards workers could mm -hmm. happen through uh, environmentalism. Is, is there any? way in which you want to update that thesis to the particular kind of ways in which uh, the global economy has been changed by COVID, if indeed you think it has been changed by COVID? I think it has at the fringes, but no, on the whole, it's been, you know, what, what both the great financial crisis did and COVID did was to consolidate the power of the 1%. And it did so in, 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 in the blatant presence of the left, 
you know. The democratic left in the United States does not touch Wall Street, won't go near Wall Street, right? On the contrary, you know, we know Nancy Pelosi has Wall Street interests. We know that Wall Street has bought up most politicians in the US Congress. You know. We know that they're busy corrupting our own politicians. So, um, you know, I, I think it's the left's failure to tackle uh, the one percent and to tackle in particular Wall Street, the city of London, Frankfurt and so on. That is our big failure and it's why we lack power. I'm going to have to go, I'm afraid. But, um, and thank you, th thank you so much for, for joining us on The Popular Show. We can't thank you enough. Click through for Anne's books and her Substack that we want you to subscribe to just below this video. Uh, it's, and by the way, it's completely free. Completely free uh, and uh, and is brilliant stuff. And why not click through to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod as well and see if you want to support the work that we're doing. And Petifor, thank you so much for joining us on the popular show. Thank you very much, James. I really appreciate the time. Thank you.